second iteration. Where the subsequent drawings of a fractal curve sudden changes may appear. Ian Malcolm The Shore of the Inland Sea Alan Grant crouched down, his nose inches from the ground. The temperature was over a hundred degrees. His knees ached, despite the rug layers pads he wore. His lungs burned from the harsh alkaline dust. Sweat dripped off of his forehead onto the ground, but Grant was oblivious to the discomfort. His entire attention was focused on a six-inch square of earth in front of him. Working patiently with a dental pick and an artist's camel brush, he exposed a tiny L-shaped fragment of a jawbone. It was only an inch long and no thicker than his little finger. The teeth were a row of small points and had the characteristics media angling. Bits of bone flaked away as he dug. Grant paused for a moment to paint the bone with rubber cement before continuing to expose it. There was no question that this was the jawbone from an infant carnivorous dinosaur. Its owner had died 79 million years ago at the age of about two months. With any luck, Grant might find the rest of the skeleton as well. If so, it would be the first complete skeleton of a baby carnivore. Hey, Alan! Alan Grant looked up, blinking in the sunlight. He pulled down his sunglasses and wiped his forehead with the back of his arm. He was crouched on an eroded hillside in the Badlands outside Snakewater, Montana. Beneath the great blue bowl of sky, blunted hills exposed outcroppings of crumbling limestone stretched for miles in every direction. There was not a tree or a bush, nothing but barren rock, hot sun and a whining wind. Visitors found the Badlands depressingly bleak, but when Grant looked at the landscape, he saw something else entirely. This barren land was what remained of another, very different world, which had vanished 80 million years ago. In his mind's eye, Grant saw himself back in the warm, swampy bay that formed the shoreline of the Great Inland Sea. This inland sea was a thousand miles wide, extending all the way from the newly upthrust rocky mountains to the sharp, craggy peaks of the Appalachians. All of the American West was underwater. At that time, there were thin clouds in the sky overhead, darkened by the smoke of a nearby volcanoes. The atmosphere was denser, richer in carbon dioxide. Plants grew rapidly along the shoreline. There were no fish in these waters, but there were clams and snails. Pterosaurs swooped down to scoop algae from the surface. A few carnivorous dinosaurs prowled the swampy shores of the lake, moving among the palm trees. And offshore was a small island, about two acres in size, ringed with dense vegetation. This island formed a protective sanctuary, where herds of herbivorous duck-billed dinosaurs laid their eggs in communal nests and raised their squeaking young. Over the millions of years that followed, the pale green alkaline lake grew shallower and finally vanished. The exposed land buckled and cracked under the heat, and the offshore island with its dinosaur eggs became the eroded hillside in northern Montana which Alan Grant was now excavating. Hey, Alan! He stood, a barrel-chested, bearded man of forty, he heard the chugging of the portable generator and the distant clatter of the jackhammer cutting into the dense rock on the next hill. He saw the kids working around the jackhammer, moving away with big pieces of rock after checking them for fossils. At the foot of the hill he saw the six tippis of his camp, the flapping mess tent and the trailer that served as a field laboratory, and he saw Ellie waving at him from the shadow of the field laboratory. 
Visitor! She called and pointed to the east. Grant saw the cloud of dust and the blue Ford sedan bouncing over the rutted road towards them. He glanced at his watch, right on time. On the other hill, the kids looked up with interest. They didn't get many visitors in Snakewater, and there had been a lot of speculation about what a lawyer from the Environmental Protection Agency would want to see Alan Grant about. But Grant knew that paleontology, the study of extinct life, had in recent years taken an unexpected relevance to the modern world. The modern world was changing fast and urgent. Questions about the weather, deforestation, global warming, or the ozone layer often seemed unanswerable, at least in part, with information from the past. Information that paleontologists could provide. He had been called twice as an expert witness in the past few years. Grant started down the hill to meet the car. The visitor coughed in the white dust as he slammed the car door. Bob Morris, EPA, he said, extending his hand. I'm with the San Francisco office. Grant introduced himself and said, You look hot, want a beer? Jesus, yeah, Morris was in his late twenties, wearing a tie and pants from the business suit. He carried a briefcase. His wingtip shoes crunched on the rocks as he walked towards the trailer. When I first came over the hill, I thought this was an Indian reservation, Morris said, pointing to the tippis. No, Grant said. Just the best way to live out here. Grant explained that in 1978, the first year of the excavations, they had come out in North Slope octahedral tents, the most advanced available. But the tents always blew over in the wind. They tried other kinds of tents with the same result. Finally, they started putting up tippies, which were larger inside, more comfortable and more stable in the wind. These are Bagford teepees, built around four poles, Grant said. CU teepees are built around three. But this used to be Blackfoot territory, so we thought, Uh-huh, Morris said. Very fitting. He squinted at the desolate landscape and shook his head. How long have you been out here? About sixty cases, Grant said. When Morris looked surprised, he explained, We measure time in beer. We start in June with a hundred cases. We've gone through about sixty so far. Sixty-three to be exact, Ellie sat the said as she reached the trailer. Grant was amused to see Morris gaping at her. Ellie was wearing cut-off jeans and a work shirt tied around her midriff. She was twenty-four and darkly tanned. Her blonde hair was pulled back. Ellie keeps us going, Grant said, introducing her. She's very good at what she does. What does she do? Morris asked. Paleobotany, Ellie said. And I also do standard field preps. She opened the door and they went inside. The air conditioning in the trailer only brought the temperature down to 85 degrees, but it seemed cool after the midday heat. The trailer had a series of long wooden tables with tiny bone specimens neatly laid out, tagged and labelled. Farther along were ceramic dishes and crocks. There was a strong odour of vinegar. Morris glanced at the bones. I thought dinosaurs were big, he said. They were, Ellie said. But everything you see here comes from the babies. Snake water is important primarily because of the number of dinosaur nesting sites here. Until we started work, there were hardly any infant dinosaurs known. Only one nest had ever been found, and in, in the Gobi Desert. 
We've discovered a dozen different hadrosaur nests, complete with eggs and bones and infants. While Grant went to the refrigerator, she showed Morris the acetic acid baths, which were used to dissolve away the limestone from the delicate bones. They look like chicken bones, Morris said, peering into the ceramic dishes. Yes, she said. They are very bird-like. And what about those? Morris said, pointing through the trailer windows to piles of large bones outside, wrapped in heavy plastic. Rejects, Ellie said. Bones too fragmentary when we took them out of the ground. In the old days we'd just discard them, but nowadays we send them for genetic testing. Genetic testing? Morris said. Here you go, Grant said, thrusting a beer into his hand. He gave another to Ellie. She chugged hers, throwing her long neck back. Morris stared. We're pretty informal here, Grant said. Wanna step into my office? Sure, Morris said. Grant led him to the end of the trailer, where there was a torn couch, a sagged chair, and a battered end table. Grant dropped onto the couch, which creaked and exhaled a cloud of chalky dust. He leaned back and thumped his boots up onto the end table and gestured for Morris to sit in the chair. Make yourself comfortable. Grant was a professor of paleontology at the University of Denver and one of the foremost researchers in his field, but he had never been comfortable with social niceties. He saw himself as an outdoor man, and he knew that all the important work in paleontology was done outdoors with your hands. Grant had little patience for academics, for the museum curators, for what he called teacup dinosaur hunters, and he took some pains to distance himself in address and behaviour from the teacup dinosaur hunters, even delivering his lectures in jeans and sneakers. Grant watched as Morris primarily brushed off the seats of the chair before he sat down. Morris opened his briefcase, rummaging through his papers and glanced back at Ellie, who was lifting bones with tweezers from an acid bath at the other end of the trailer, paying no attention to them. You're probably wondering why I'm here, Grant nodded. It's a long way to come, Mr. Morris. Well, Morris said, to get right to the point, the EPA is concerned about the activities of Hammond Foundation. You received some funding from them? Thirty thousand dollars a year, Grant said, nodding. For the last five years. Uh, what do you know about the Foundation, Morris said. Grant shrugged. The Hammond Foundation is a respected source of academic grants. They fund research all over the world, including several dinosaur researchers. I know they support Bob Carey out in the Tyrell in Alberta, and John Welly out in Alaska. Probably more. Do you know why the Hammond Foundation supports so much dinosaur research? Morris asked. Of course, it's because old John Hammond is a dinosaur nut. You've met Hammond? Grant shrugged. Once or twice he comes here for brief visits. He's quite elderly, you know. And eccentric, the way rich people sometimes are, but... Always very enthusiastic. Why? Well, Morris said, the Hammond Foundation is actually a rather mysterious organization. He pulled out a Xeroxed world map marked with red dots and passed it to Grant. These are the digs the Foundation financed last year. Notice anything odd about them? Montana, Alaska, Canada, Sweden. They're all sides in the north. There's nothing below the 45th parallel. Morris pulled out more maps.
It's the same year after year. Dinosaur projects to the south in Utah, Colorado, Mexico never get funded. The Hammond Foundation only supports cold weather digs. We'd like to know why. Grant shuffled through the maps quickly. If it was true that the Foundation only supported cold weather digs, then it was strange behaviour because some of the best dinosaur researchers were working in hot climates. And and there are other puzzles, Morris said. For example, what is the relationship of dinosaurs to amber? Amber? Yes, it's the hard yellow resin in dried tree sap. I know what it is, Grant said. But why are you asking? Because, Morris said, over the last five years, Hammond has purchased enormous quantities of amber in America, Europe, and Asia, including many pieces of museum-quality jewelry. The foundation had put, spent $17 million on amber. They now possess the largest privately held stock of this material in the world. I don't get it, Grant said. Neither does anybody else, Morris said. As far as we can tell, it doesn't make any sense at all. Amber is easily synthesized. It has no commercial or defense value. There's no reason to stockpile it, but Hammond has done just that over many years. Amber, Grant said, shaking his head. And what about his island in Costa Rica, Morris continued. Ten years ago, the Hammond Foundation leased an island from the government of Costa Rica, supposedly to set up a biological preserve. I don't know anything about that, Grant said, frowning. I haven't been able to find out much, Morris said. The island is a hundred miles off the west coast. It's very rugged, and it's an area of the ocean where the combinations of the wind and the current make it almost perpetually covered in fog. They used to call it the Cloud Islands. Isla Nublar. Apparently the Costa Ricans were amazed that anybody would want it. Morris searched in his briefcase. The reason I mentioned it, he said, is that uh, according to the records you were paid a consultant's fee in connection with this island? I was, Grant said. Morris passed the sheets of paper to Grant. It was the Xerox of a check issued in March 1984 from the InGen Incorporated, Farallon Road, Palo Alto, California. Made out to Alan Grant in the amount of $12,000. At the lower corner, the check was marked Consultant Service, stroke Costa Rica, stroke Juvenile Hyperspace. Oh, sure, Grant said. I remember that. It was, it was weird as hell, but I remember it, and it didn't have anything to do with an island. Alan Grant had found the first clutch of dinosaur eggs in Montana in 1979 and many more in the next two years, but he hadn't gotten around to publishing his findings until 1983. His paper with the report of a herd of 10,000 duck-billed dinosaurs living along the shore of the vast inland sea, building communal nests of eggs in the mud, raising their infant dinosaurs in the herd, made Grant a celebrity overnight. The notion of maternal instincts in giant dinosaurs and the drawings of cute babies poking their snouts out of the eggs had appeal around the world. Grant was besieged with requests for interviews, lectures and books. Characteristically, he turned them all down, wanting only to continue his excavations. But it was during those frantic days in the mid-1980s that he had approached by the InGen Corporation with a request for consulting services. 
Had you heard of InGen before? Morris asked. No. How did they contact you? Telephone call. It was a man named Gennaro or Janino or something like that. Morris nodded. Donald Gennaro, he said. He's a legal counsel for InGen. Anyway, he wanted to know about eating habits of dinosaurs, and he offered me a fee to draw up a paper for him. Grant drank a beer, set the can on the floor. Gennaro was particularly interested in young dinosaurs, infants and juveniles. What they ate, I guess he thought I would know about that. Did you? Not really, no. I told him that. We found lots of uh, skeletal material. We had a very little dietary data, but Gennaro said he knew he, we hadn't published everything and he wanted whatever we had. And he offered a very large fee, $50,000. Morris took out a tape recorder and set it on the end table. You mind? No, go ahead. So Gennaro telephoned you in 1984. What happened then? Well, Grant said... You see, our operation here, 50,000 would support two, four summers of digging. I told him I'd do what I could. So you agreed to prepare a paper for him? Yes. On the dietary habits of juvenile dinosaurs? Yes. You met Gennaro? No, just by on the phone. Did Gennaro say why he wanted this information? Yes, Grant said. He was planning a museum for children. He wanted to feature baby dinosaurs. He said he was hiring a number of academic consultants and named them. There were paleontologists like me and the mathematician from Texas named Ian Malcolm and a couple of ecologists, a systems analyst. Good group. Morris nodded, making notes. So you accepted the consultancy? Yes, I agreed to send him a summary of our work. What we knew about the habits of the duck-billed hadrosaurs we'd found. What kind of information did you send? Morris asked. Everything. Nesting behavior, territory ranges, feeding behavior, social behavior, everything. And how did Gennaro respond? He kept calling and calling, sometimes in the middle of the night. Would the dinosaurs eat this? Would they, would they eat that? Should the exhibit include this? I could never understand why he was so worked up. I mean, I, I think dinosaurs are important too, but not that important. They've been dead 65 million years. You'd think his calls could have waited until morning. I see, Morris said. And the $50,000? Grant shook his head. I got tired of Gennaro and called the whole thing off. We set it up for 12000 That must have been about the middle of eighty-five. Morris made a note. And InGen, any other contact with them? Not since 1985. And when did the Hammond Foundation begin to fund your research? I'd have to look, Grant said, but it was around then, mid-80s. And you know Hammond is such a rich dinosaur enthusiast, yes? Morris made another note. Look, Grant said, if the EPA is so concerned about John Hammond and what he's doing in the dinosaur sites in the north, the Amber purchases the islands in Costa Rica, why don't you just ask him about it? At the moment we can't, Morris said. Why not? Grant said. 
"'Because we don't have any evidence of wrongdoing,' Morris said. "'But personally, I think it's clear John Hammett is evading the law.' "'I was first contacted,' Morris explained, "'by the Office of Technology Transfer. "'The OTT monitors shipments of American technology, "'which might have military significance. "'They called to say that InGen had two areas of possible illegal technology transfer.' First, InGen shipped three Cray XMPs to Costa Rica. InGen characterized it as a transfer within corporate divisions and said they weren't for resale, but OTT couldn't imagine why the hell somebody needed that power in Costa Rica. Free Crays? Grant said. Is that a kind of computer? Morris nodded. Very powerful supercomputers. To put in perspective, Three Craze represents more computing power than any privately held company in America. And Injun sent the machines to Costa Rica. And you have to wonder why. I give up. Why? Grant said. Nobody knows. And the hoods are even more worrisome, Morris continued. Hoods are automated gene sequences, machines that work out the genetic code by themselves. They're so new that they haven't been put on the restricted list yet. But any genetic engineering lab is likely to have one. If it can uh, afford the half-million-dollar price tag. He flipped through his notes. Well, it seems InGen shipped 24 hood sequences to their island in Costa Rica. Again, they said it was a transfer of divisions and not an export, Morris said. There wasn't much that OTT could do. They're not officially concerned with use. But InGen was obviously setting up one of the most powerful genetic engineering facilities in the world, in an obscure Central American country, a country with no regulations. That kind of thing has happened before. There had already been cases of American bioengineering companies moving to another country, so they would not be hampered by regulations and rules. The most flagrant, Morris explained, was the biasing rabies case. In 1986, Genetic Biasing Corporation of Cupertino tested and bioengineered rabies vaccine on a farm in Chile. They didn't inform the government of Chile or the farm workers involved. They simply released the vaccine. The vaccine consisted of live rabies virus genetically modified to be non-virulent. But the virulence hadn't been tested. Biosyn didn't know whether the virus could still cause rabies or not. Even worse, the virus had been modified. Ordinarily, you couldn't contract rabies unless you were bitten by an animal. But Biosyn modified the rabies virus to cross the pulmonary alveoli. You could get an infection just inhaling it. Biosyn staff has brought this live rabies virus down to Chile in a carry-on bag on a commercial airline flight. Morris often wondered what would have happened if the capsule had broken open during the flight. Everybody in the plane might have been affected with rabies. It was outrageous. It was irresponsible. It was criminal negligent. But no action was taken against Biosyn. The Chilean farmers who unwittingly risked their lives were ignorant peasants. The government of Chile had an economic crisis to worry about, and the American authorities had no jurisdiction. So, Lewis Dodgson, the geneticist responsible for the tests, was still working at Biosyn. Biosyn was still as reckless as ever, and other American companies were hurrying to set up facilities in foreign countries that lacked sophistication about genetic research. 
Countries that perceive genetic engineering to be like any other high-tech development and thus welcomed it to their lands, unaware of the dangers posed. So that's why we began our investigation of InGen, Morris said, about three weeks ago. And what have you actually found, Grant said. Not much, Morris admitted. When I go back to San Francisco, we'll probably have to do a close investigation, and I think I'm about finished here. He started packing up his briefcase. By the way, what does juvenile hyperspace mean? That's just a fancy label for my report, Grant said. Hyperspace is a term for multi-dimensional space, like three-dimensional tic-tac-toe. If you uh, were to take all the behaviors of an animal, like its eating and movement and sleeping, you could plot the animal within the multi-dimensional space. Some paleontologists refer to the behavior of an animal as occurring in the ecological hyperspace. Juvenile hyperspace would just refer to the behavior of a juvenile dinosaurs. If you wanted to be as pretentious as possible. At the far end of the trailer, the phone rang. Ellie answered it. She said, He's in a meeting right now. Can you call you back? Morris snapped his briefcase shut and stood. Thanks for your help and the beer, he said. No problem, Grant said. Grant walked with Morris down the trailer to the door at the far end. Morris said, Did Hammond ever ask for any physical materials from your site? Bones or eggs or anything like that? No, Grant said. Dr. Sattler mentioned you did some genetic work here. Well, not exactly, Grant said. When we remove the fossils that are broken or for some other reason not suitable for museum preservation, we send the bones out to the lab that grinds them up and tries to extract proteins for us. The proteins are then identified and the report is sent back to us. And which lab is that? Morris asked. Medical Biological Service in Salt Lake. How'd you choose them? Competitive bids. The lab has nothing to do with InGen. Not that I know, Grant said. They come to a halt at the door of the trailer. Grant opened it and felt the rush of hot air from outside. Morris paused to put on his sunglasses. One last thing, Morris said. Suppose InGen wasn't really making a museum exhibit. Is there anything else they could have done with the information in the report you gave them? Grant laughed. Sure, they could feed a baby hadrosaur. Morris laughed too. A baby hadrosaur. That'd be something to see. How big were they? About so, Grant said, holding his hands six inches apart. Squirrel-sized. And how long before they became fully grown? Three years, Grant said, give or take. Morris held out his hand. Well, thanks again for your help. Take it easy driving back, Grant said. He watched for a moment as Morris walked back towards the car, and then he closed the trailer door. Grant said, Well, what do you think? Ellie shrugged. Naive. You like the part where John Hammond was is the evil arch-villain? Grant laughed. John Hammond's about as sinister as Walt Disney. By the way, who called? Oh, Ellie said. It was a woman named Alice Levine. She works in the Columbia Medical Center. You know her? Grant shook his head. No. Well, it was something about identifying some remains. She wants you to call her back right away.